0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hi, I'm Mark Brumley, and I'm here with my colleague, Anthony Ryan of Ignatius Press. And you are with us today at the Ignatius Press author interview. It's an exclusive interview with our author, Ian Murphy. So we wanna welcome everybody to this program. Uh, Ian is a convert to Catholicism. His book is called Dying to Live, the subtitle from agnostic to Baptist to Catholic. That's an intriguing uh, array of places you've been, Ian. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate getting to see you and and having this opportunity to talk a little bit about the book. Thanks so much, Tony, Tony Ryan, our marketing director, and I. We're going to uh, interrogate you thoroughly for the next half hour or so, so people will know everything about you—the good, the bad, and maybe the ugly. We'll have to see. Um, as we get started, uh, Ian. I want to mention uh, something that I think is fascinating about this book. Tony will remember when we got this book in our acquisitions process, and, and several of us read through the manuscript. <laughs> one of the people in the process wondered whether this was a was fiction uh, because it was so dramatic in so many ways. Uh, and Scott Hahn at the beginning of the story, Scott wrote the foreword to the book. You know, no mean convert himself, right? Scott says in the beginning at the foreword, he says, most of us converts can speak of a long pursuit by the hound of heaven. But only Ian Murphy can begin his story with a helicopter chase. And the pilot only gets and the plot only gets stranger and stranger and more exciting from there. And he concludes the before the journey here, though, is a wild ride. You're going to love it. I envy you the chance to read it for the first time. So now I'll get out of your way. Here comes the helicopter. What a way to begin a, a book. <laughs> what is the helicopter that Scott refers to?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, uh, I do have, I guess, what people call one of those dramatic conversion stories. And I I use that term dramatic carefully because, I mean everyone is an ongoing convert anyone in the church is is a convert is an ongoing convert and everybody everybody's encounter with the living god is dramatic i mean any encounter with jesus christ is dramatic because it's an encounter with jesus christ uh so i I use that word carefully in another sense however Relative to the way many people come to Christ through a still small voice or a, or a small way, there are relatively dramatic aspects to my story. One of them being the chopper, which happened because when I was 18 years old, I was thrust unexpectedly into celebrity. I wanted to talk about Jesus at my secular high school's commencement address. I was named valedictorian. And when they saw my speech pro- proposal, the speech advisor said, well, you can't do that. You can't say Jesus at commencement. Uh, if you do, I'll pull the plug on the microphone myself. You can't say that name. Well, I, I stood up for my freedom of religion and freedom of speech, and it blew up into a national media circus with me on radio and TV news daily. And... Uh, cameras and flashing camera bulbs and TV cameras and microphones in my face. Uh, like the paparazzi thronging me like some Hollywood actor. My high school, my house. I would soon find out not even the men's room in my high school gymnasium was a safe hideout for me. The media was even in there and cornered me once. Uh, and you know, that whole media blitz included Channel 4 News dispatching a helicopter to chase me the whole way from Pennsylvania to Michigan, where we were on our way to see a wedding in order to get the next televised interview. So although we lost the choppers and didn't tell them where we were headed, they landed the crew at my house and focused instead that night opening the news with my senior class picture, a close zoom in, and of course it had been a bad hair day. So that just figures. But, yeah, it's uh, relatively dramatic in that sense, sure.
0: Anthony, Ryan, you look like you have a question for this man.
2: I do. Um, Ian, uh, it's such a compelling story, such an amazing journey. Uh, I'm wondering, though, why it took you – so long to tell it in book form. I mean, um, a lot of times when people have a conversion story like yours, they become Catholic, they usually write their stories, you know, fairly close to the time they converted, but yours took a long time to write. I'm just wondering if you can kind of uh, talk about that. Yeah, that's
1: an excellent question. Um, I'm a procrastinator, and it was one of those things I was always gonna do, and funny how time just gets away from you. Like, I'm I'm gonna write that book, but well, first I've got to finish you know, this job or I'm gonna write that book, but first I'll do my PhD comprehensive exams and then I'll write that book, but I better write my dissertation first or my committee's gonna get impatient. And life happens. And it's funny, I, you mentioned that because what finally put the fire under my seat for me to get moving on this was I was on a Franciscan University Presents uh, recording with, uh, Mike Herndon and uh, Scott Hahn and Dr. Regis Martin and we were we were just recording a Lenten show and it Dr. Regis asked me you know Ian why in the world have you not written your conversion story and there was just something about the way he asked it I felt like the Holy Spirit was using him as an instrument and the Lord was asking me point blank why haven't you done this yet? And finally I heard it, I felt the urgency. And I was in the middle of responding to an email from a pen pal family friend named Margie, uh, who asked me about my faith. And I realized that my email had unofficially started the book. So I basically just kept the email reply going to my pen pal and then got it published. Thank you, Ignatius
2: Press. Well, it was worth waiting then, for, I'll say
0: that. Absolutely. Uh, so let me, same, if
2: I could just follow up with that, Mark. Sure. Um, early on in the book, you say, I always loved Jesus even as an agnostic, um, which I find interesting because my understanding of an agnostic is someone who's not sure there is a God. Uh, but yet you say you loved Jesus who you know said he was God, we believe he's God. So I'd be curious to hear your kind of take on that. And I'm also wondering if you think other agnostics acknowledge the same feeling or was God uh, maybe pulling you towards him specifically at that time and in connection with that, maybe you could tell us what happened to you that actually brought you to faith. What was something that's kind of extraordinary I think happened to you when you were, you know, like 14? Yeah, that's another
1: excellent question. You know, in my experience, there's basically two types of agnostics. There's the, I don't care apathetic agnostic, who I don't know if there's a God, and it's just essentially a way of saying I don't really care whether there's a God. The second type, the type that I fell into, is the actively seeking type of agnostic. And when it comes to those who are actively seeking the truth, I don't think I'm alone in feeling an invitational draw towards Jesus Christ even during unbelief or not being convinced because those who seek the truth find it and and i was you know very stressed out seeking the truth actively especially troubled by the idea that when i die it might just be lights out and i won't ever have any memory of even having existed at all that thought terrified me so I knew that the purpose of life, the meaning of my existence hinged on if I had a designer and if so, what that designer's intent was in crafting an eon. <clears throat> and so I, I was actively seeking and to answer the second part of your question, I was so troubled by, is there a God or not? Is it lights out or not? Is there a purpose to living or, or not? that I cried out this prayer at 14. I said, okay, I'm officially an agnostic. I'm either talking to the air right now and nobody hears me or there is a God who does. In that case, if there's a God, I, I need you to know something. I need to be allowed to touch the spiritual realm for myself in order to have faith. You know how they say, be careful what you pray for. You may just get it. Uh, I was allowed to touch the spiritual realm for myself in a really terrifying, yet at the same time, fascinating experience of tangible spiritual warfare that I was miraculously delivered from at the authority of Jesus' name. And the details of that uh, intense encounter are in the book, uh, but the, that, showed me and i think it would be enough to show any skeptic so there is more than meets the eye there is more to reality than our five senses can yet access there is a spiritual realm there is a god and there is a war for
0: the human soul now you're enticing us of course we want people to buy the book obviously and uh, people who are interested in getting it they can go to ignatius.com to get it uh, and have the whole story told there. But tell us a little bit more about that tangible uh, spiritual experience because people are going to wonder, you know, you're going to have them. You've got, you already got them at the edge of their seat. So what can you sure. tell us about that without, without spilling all the beans? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it ha- I was awoken one night
1: by something that I knew was in the room with me. I couldn't see it, but I could tell where it was. It's as though it was cloaked but I it left this haziness that was just enough to be detectable. I could follow its movement. It was hovering above me in the air. And even more scary than that was it could communicate with me telepathically. Hmm. Uh, it, it introduced itself, I'm here, I am in the room with you right now, and I intend you harm. And I, I did not hear it audibly. I couldn't hear it out loud. It was clearer than that. These were not my own thoughts. These were intrusional messages planted directly, communicated to my mind by this preternatural entity that announced its presence in the room with me and its desire to hurt me. And then I I followed its movement to me. I was sitting up at the time watching it, and and I asked it, how come I can't see you? Hmm. And I didn't realize you know, at the time we sh- I shouldn't engage these things in conversations. You know, we, we should take a, a good lesson from Eve. Don't talk to snakes.
0: That's the time when it's good to not be hospitable. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes.
1: And, and it answered me. It said, I, I'm able to travel invisible to your human eye, but make no mistake about it. I'm here and I want you to die. And that's when it descended on top of me, gripped me physically. Now I could feel it crushing my legs together, crushing my arms against my side. I saw the physical compression coming down as it threw me on my back against the bed and started squeezing me like a boa constrictor. And as terrifying as it was, I was fascinated. I mean, I was this diving self-professing agnostic, wondering if there is a spiritual realm. And I am looking at proof positive that we are not alone in the universe and that things are out there fighting over our destiny and that our free will is somehow involved here. And and so I, I commanded it in the name of Jesus to leave and it it pled for its life. Where did At you get the
0: idea of, of commanding it in the name of Jesus? So you're an, an agnostic who's prayed this sort of Jesus prayer uh, and asked for a sign or indication, and this has sort of come. Where did you get the idea to use Jesus' name in that way?
1: Yeah, good question. I had already read the Bible at that point. Um, I I nearly finished the Bible by the time I was in the second grade in the form of a 10-volume children's translation. The right. we, we have to be, to
0: be clear. It wasn't the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek that you exactly. finished in no. second
1: grade. It was a kid's Bible, and I started out by matching the pictures to words I knew, you know, but but I did end up reading the whole children's Bible and then moved on to the actual Bible. And I knew enough by the eighth grade to know who to call upon.
0: Very good. Wow. Tony, uh, you, you had asked the question. I don't know if you want to follow up with that any, on, on any point. Well,
2: um, I'd like to find out a little bit more about his upbringing. Um, I know you said that you grew up in a family of believers, but it sounds like it was kind of a loose, um, you know, maybe one of the families that would say they were spiritual but not religious uh, or something like that. I was wondering if you can tell about tell us about your uh, faith experience with your family and your parents.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a lot of my students. You know, I, I don't consider myself to be a particularly religious person. I do consider my thoughts to be a very spiritual. <laughs> Whenever I hear that, I always wonder how do you spell F- spiritual S-P-U-R-C-H-A-L. I think it's like a great name for a pet goldfish. I always wanted a goldfish. But uh this is generic. Yeah, my, my parents were hippies. They uh they loved Jesus, both of them with all their hearts. They are sincere friendship with the lord and told us about him and the bible but also emphasized we'd have to make our own minds up for ourselves someday um and you know told us about jesus but did not bring us to church in a nutshell so i grew up without church you know how's that work how do you have serious christian parents but no church community Uh, it's that whole hippie attitude you know that that down with the establishment man you know me and jesus we got our own thing we don't need that institutionalized christianity me and the lord have church in the woods so that if you can imagine <laughs> that spirituality raising me where there was jesus but no church
0: and yep. so we we were left to make up our minds for ourselves i you know i come from a. An evangelical background. Before that, I was kind of unchurched. So I often say, you know, I grew up a nun, N O N E, not N U N. Uh, People want, you know, nowadays you can say, I grew up a nun and be a man, and people don't bat an eye at that. They figure you're just transgendered or something. But anyway, it sounds like your parents were not quite that nun category, uh, but not quite, you know, substantial. Uh, Credal Christians. Yeah, right? they, they had
1: a detached engagement with church community. I mean, we'd go on Christmas and Easter, and whenever we visited their hometown in New Jersey, we'd we'd always go because their old classmate was the preacher, and they never missed a chance to hear Charlie preach. And he ended up baptizing me in my in my uh, grandpa's pool as a teenager. Uh, So that was fun. So a very hippie baptism. But, I mean, aside from our trips back to their hometown uh, and and major holidays, church just wasn't a regular part of our lives. Right.
0: And and I think a lot of people don't realize uh, that there are quite a number of people who identify as Christians in the country. uh, And they're good people and they have some kind of relationship with God. But this lack of, you know, specific creedal commitment has all kinds of problems for them, as well as problems for their children and other people.
1: Yeah, something I, some way I like to think about it is, is everybody is in formation. They might not use the word formation, maybe they've never heard the term formation That everyone is in formation, which is a bit stronger than the term education. We aren't just being educated, we're being formed, we're being molded by the influences around us, by our beliefs, by our worldview. And uh, everyone's being formed somehow. So to be self aware of that, I think, is very important.
0: Good.
2: it seems to me, I'm not a convert, I'm a cradle Catholic, but it seems to me that, you know, for any, um, you know, either uh, an agnostic, an atheist, or even a, just kind of a general Christian, mainly for agnostic or atheist, there's three big questions they kind of have to ask themselves and answer, and maybe you can talk about this. And I know you talk about it in the book, and one, first one is, you know, is there a God, and if there is a God, you know, what, what is he, and does he love me? Then the next question is, well, who is Jesus Christ uh and is he who he said he was uh and if so, what does that mean for me and then finally, if did Jesus Christ found a church and if so, where is that church today? So I'm wondering if you could kind of comment on that kind of those kind of major questions. seems to me that all converts and even those of us on the journey have to kind of answer
1: yeah, that's right. I had to go through each of those. And uh, for me, it started with the general notion of transcendence. To be open that there is reality beyond my limited, finite self. And and to say that, you know, there might be more to the universe than me, sounds obvious, but when you're, when you are a materialist, when you wonder if there's a God taking that step, you know, out of arrogance as though the whole universe revolves around yourself and opening up that there might be more, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't just assume that the rest of the iceberg isn't there because, uh, well, I only see this tip. So that's the extent of reality, you know. It's and so I'm going to conclude that the rest of the iceberg's not there because I have no access to it currently. Well, that's a sweeping claim of blind faith. You know, to open up that even though I can I can only see the tip that it might be the tip of something much more that I'm accessing. That first mm-hmm. The image God gave me in the end, like if, if there was one thing I could pass along to any agnostic or doubting readers out there, it's this image. And it's, if you could stretch your imagination for a moment, picture a baby in utero and imagine the baby with one of those cartoon thought balloons, like, and a thought balloon. And the baby says this, I have searched throughout this entire known dark watery universe. And I have found nothing to persuade me of the existence of some alleged mom. It's gonna take proof to convince me that mom really exists. And that was me in my atheistic doubting and my agnosticism and my skepticism because you're not going to find God in your thinking just like that baby isn't going to find mom in the womb because mom transcends the baby. Mom's bigger. The baby's in the mom. And if the baby comes to full term, it will enter the place one day where the mom is and meet its parent face to face. And so that image, once I opened up the transcendence, it changed my whole posture. No longer did I posture myself toward reality as though it needed to meet me and my limitations and satisfy my limited 1% access to the tip of the iceberg. It was more, I was dwarfed by a transcendence bigger than myself and getting these little clues and little indicators and little glimpses along the way so that I could learn who he was. So how did Jesus fit into this? Well, he was the one who claimed to be my creator revealed to me. This this was probably the most startling epiphany for me in my agnosticism. And one of the reasons I loved Jesus even before I believed he was God is that out of all the other world religions and out of every other available worldview, Jesus was markedly different. I mean, there were plenty of people who claimed to have good news. Then Jesus said, I myself am the good news. There were plenty of people out there who claimed to have discovered some relevant truth about the meaning of life. But Jesus claimed far more than a discovery. He didn't say, I've discovered a truth that I'm passing along. He said, I am that truth revealed to you. And logically speaking, if I were to know any mystery or any secret, the best way for me to learn more about that secret would be is if it revealed itself to me, not if I claim to discover something about it, but if it actually unveiled itself and revealed to me who it was, that would be the best way for me to know about the mystery. And here's this man who walks around on the earth and calls himself God, walks on water, commands the elements, commands, even death answers to him. It was like the computer programmer had showed up in his own computer program, walking around inside it and commanding it from the inside to introduce himself to his creation. And I mean, no other worldview even came close. It It wasn't a discovery, it was a revealing.
0: Okay, so obviously you read the uh, Bible very. So then, um, so then uh, oops, I'm sorry. That's Jesus. And what about so be, before you? Before you go off of Jesus, let's just stay on Jesus for a moment, because I want to. want to understand this. You read the Bible uh, at a very younger age, um, but h- how specifically did you come to hear about Jesus beyond what you you gleaned about him and reading the Bible? Because it sounds like when you talked about your your, your initial conversion to Christ, you had a pretty substantial idea of who Jesus was. So how did you get that? Yeah, that came from extended
1: relatives who, you know, it's funny, I, I kinda kept my whole agnostic crisis from eight years old to 14 years old a secret from my immediate nuclear family. Um, as far as they knew, I, I believed in God and loved him like the rest of the family. Uh, Meanwhile, I'm in this inner turmoil, reading Darwin in the second grade. I mean, that's when I first opened the Origin of the Species was when I was eight years old. I mean, that's how troubled I was. And The fact that Darwin believed in God was of little comfort. What if, however unlikely, his theory could explain that I'm an accident? That freaked me out. And so I, instead of going to my immediate family, I went to extended relatives, my uncle and godfather, Tim, who was also the first Catholic convert in the family, my great auntie Jojo, who has, you know, this really hilarious scene in the book where she, you know, I ask her about faith and she basically says, what the hell is wrong with you? How could you not believe this? And and so I, and I went to my nanny who was a a Christian, a a convert to Christianity out of a dramatic past in witchcraft. and then eventually became catholic and so I, you know between my grandmother and my grandfathers and my great aunt and my uncle and godfather you know i would drill them with my questions and they would give me books to read they would field my questions they would read to me from the scripture and that's how i had such a substantial understanding of christ by the time i was 14 okay Thanks so to-
0: i want i want to go to tony's question but i just wanted to underscore The fact that it wasn't, you know, sort of just you reading the Bible on your own that you came to understand Christ as important as reading the Bible was. But you actually had the witness of other Christians who are helping you and guiding you and giving you resources. And that's an important point because we often don't we often we Catholics, especially, but Christians more generally uh, sometimes overlook or minimize the extent to which we have an influence on other people and we can help them in their spiritual journey by being prepared to talk about Jesus and talk about our faith. Anyway, sorry, Tony, I didn't mean to interrupt your, uh, your questioning there.
2: Nope. It's all good. I was just wondering then, um, so what then made you um, think about the, a church that Christ founded and end up realizing it was the Catholic Church? Tell us about that final big step.
1: Sure. Uh, From first being handed Rome Sweet Home by Scott Scott and Kimberly Hahn in 1993, it was the same year that that crazy media blitz blew nationally and made me the free speech kid. It was at that wedding we had to drive out to in Michigan shortly before my commencement where my newly Catholic uncle handed me *Rome, sweet home. And at the time I said, I am going to tear this book to shreds. <laughs> Little did I know one day that its, it's author would, would mention me in one of his books, even write the foreword to my own. So you can't tell me. God doesn't have a sense of humor. But at the time I said I'd tear it to shreds. Well, I couldn't tear it to shreds. I read it and I was actually persuaded by it. So I picked up the next book was Carl Keating's Catholicism and Fundamentalism. After that, Steve Ray's Crossing the Tiber, and one after the next, these books answered my questions. I came to realize that I never actually hated the Catholic Church. You know, that whole I'm going to tear this Catholic stuff to shreds attitude I inherited from my vehemently anti-Catholic dad. And you know, just because that's how I was raised, you know, he called the Catholic Church the whore of Rome. I grew up hearing the church called a whore, literally, uh, yeah. and that that influenced me. And so, with no substantial reason, just because it was what my dad taught me to think and feel, I would be opposed to the Catholic Church. Hmm. And uh, and I, I came to realize through know, all, all those, reading those books across you know, the years from 1993 to 2003, it was a 10-year process. You know, conversion isn't overnight. But in every case, the church had the answer. And I saw that I, I never actually hated the Catholic Church. I hated who I thought the Catholic Church was, which is true for so many people. Once I found out what it was, and nothing I thought about it was accurate, they didn't do any of the things my dad had accused them of doing. I mean, without exception, everything I'd been told was wrong. And when I found out what the church was, I, I fell in love with it. And then there was the comedy of the broken road to get me finally out of my parsonage, out of my full-time pastorate. I mean, my mind was convinced it was my will that
0: needed some work. Talk about that a little bit, uh, people. We've we've talked about you moving from agnostic to to Christian uh, and to Catholic Christian. That Christian stage, you what what church background or what? Excuse me, what church affiliation did you have at that time? Yeah, it was it was the Baptist. It started out a uh, generic born again Christian,
1: as my parents termed it uh, when I when I came to faith. But it specifically was to the Baptist tradition, namely because they were the ones who licensed me and ordained me and the community I ended up attaching to as a young adult. Uh, When I went to master's school, for example, to get a a master's in theology, it was a Baptist university. And they started having me interim preach at a number of churches, all Baptists. Uh, I got licensed by the Baptist General Convention of Texas and eventually ordained. So it was more just the community I fell in with, but I did re- remember thinking at the time, they do seem the closest to the New Testament church. I mean, they emphasize all the fundamentals from the Bible to Trinity to salvation in Jesus. They, they really get the basics and they don't get lost in a bunch of <clears throat> gobbledygook. They just keep it to the fundamentals. And I, that was my mindset. So I was uh, a dyed in the wool Baptist for a while. And uh, and none, none of the truth from that tradition was lost when I became Catholic. You know, as it's been said before, becoming Catholic out of a Baptist background is a process of addition, not subtraction. And everything the Baptist taught me and uh, formed me in that was true, was also in the Catholic Church, along with every other truth. So I still keep and treasure that Baptist heritage, and I'm and I'm grateful for the love of Jesus they instilled in me.
0: Are there any so, Bapt- I, Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: Oh, sorry, I was going to just say, I was wondering if you had any you know, a lot of times you're about people uh, struggling to become Catholics. There's certain doctrines or teachings that are kind of obstacles for them. And I was wondering if there are any particular doctrines or teachings that were really a struggle for you to have to overcome to become a Catholic.
1: Oh, excellent question. Yeah. uh, In general, something I found that helped me with all my questions, no matter what they were, I'll, I'll pass along. And it was that Anything I thought I took issue with in the Catholic liturgy was something that in some way I was already practicing or I already believed. In, without exception, if I thought I took issue, for example, with, with liturgy, but then I realized, wait. Baptists have a liturgy. We have an order of the service. We have a time to stand up and a time to sit down and a time to kneel. They -hmm. just look different, that's all. You know, but we we absolutely have a liturgy. Or I thought, like, I'm against a line of succession, the passing of the keys. I don't believe in all that. Well, Baptists had a line of succession. They had a passing of the keys that traces back uh, to the Reformation via the Anabaptists. They absolutely had a trace of the line of confession, you know, it, it, and it was just like that over and over and over again. I thought I was against it and realized, wait, I already believe that real presence. Well, where two or more are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. I didn't believe that was representational. I believed that in a very special way, because he's also there in our private prayers too, in the indwelling spirit. So when he specifies where two or more are gathered, it's not that he's not with me when I'm alone, it's that where there's a community in his name, he's present truly in a special, unique way. I wouldn't know how to rubricize that way. I wouldn't know how to make it into a mathematic formula, but Jesus said it and I trust it that he's really there in a special way. So the idea of real presence wasn't as far-fetched as I thought. I already believed it in plenty of other forms. So those those are examples that no matter you know, what the question was, I came to see that I already did it. I already believed it. I already practiced it in some way or another. Mm-hmm. The specific hang-up I had was the communion of the saints. Sure. I was just allergic to the idea of asking for prayers from the dead. And I had no theological objection. I mean, I I asked the living to pray for me all the time. I mean, so I knew logically my aversion made no sense. And it was just so deeply instilled in in my parental formation, especially through my father, that the practice was the worst kind of idolatry. And so that allergy just stayed with me. Even once I knew better, I still found it so hard to do. And and I was frustrated with myself. I have no problem asking my brother in Christ to pray for me, but I won't ask this brother in Christ to pray for me. He's among the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews refers to. What's the problem? But I, I was I just thought it was idolatry in my Emotions, not in my mind, and God allowed the perfect experiences to open me, open me up to that. You know where I used to struggle, soliciting the prayers of the Church triumphant on my behalf. Now it's getting me to shut up. That's the problem.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure the Saints don't mind. They're very, they're very patient. Yes. <laughs> no kidding. So, uh, so you talked about your own conversion from from being a Baptist to to, to the Catholic Church. Are there other people that you've been associated with who've had any kind of uh, movement in the Catholic direction by virtue of their association with you? Um, Yeah, there are
1: uh, a number of people, not from my original church, but uh, in my ministry sense have credited me with entering the Catholic Church. And that's always very exciting to hear when that happens. But I mean, in the end, I don't want anyone into the Catholic Church. The Holy Spirit does that. But I, I am an evangelist and uh and there are there are souls in the Catholic Church who say it was, you know, my story was instrumental in that. And so I praise God for them. From my own church, I wonder, you know, I'm not I don't have any confirmed cases, but there were a few who were very close to following me in. And I don't know if they eventually did. There was a deacon I mentioned in the book. He said he was a step behind me. Um, one of the mentors I went through to try to talk me out of Catholicism had just converted a few years earlier and was keeping it a secret. I just talked to him a few weeks ago, and we're still close, and, and he's still a Catholic. And he, his influence was the the straw that broke the camel's back for me to enter RCIA. Um, you know, I go to this guy, to talk me out of the Catholic Church, and he's already in it. And he he was the third person I went to to talk me out of this, who said, I'm Catholic, or I already believe. So, you know, that that comedy of a broken road that the Holy Spirit used to help me take that leap and, and enter our CIA when I was, you know, preaching Bible Belt. You know, it was an exciting ride. But there were a few others. The one that stands out the most of all was this lady from my old Baptist church where I was head pastor. And she came to me and, and she didn't know yet that I was entering RCIA and leaving, that I had already handed in my resignation to the deacon board. She just came to me privately and said, you know what? I wanted to ask you about Catholicism because... I normally make fun of Catholics, but every time I experience real evil in this world, I'm drawn to Rome. I wanna call a priest. There's a recognizable authority I'm attracted to. I mean, what are Baptists gonna do in the face of satanic evil? Vote about it? And I thought, she said something really insightful there. What are we gonna do? Vote about it. And I thought, well, that really is the Baptist way. It's as though, God dispensed this revelation that invi- individual interpretation and, and majority voting are his new favored means for guiding his church on the earth. And he never dispensed any such revelation. Uh, when does majority voting ever decide truth? Anywhere in the scripture. You know, and so uh, I thought she said something really insightful. And she said she was going to look into it. And uh, as did the youth minister who was about this close. So. I wish I could uh, follow up and let you know what happened, but
0: I've lost touch with, with all those people. Well, I'm sure that uh, you're praying for them, and God's grace can affect us you know, in many ways that we never realize. So I'm sure that's at work in their lives. Uh, just if you would, and I know we're going to wrap up here in a, in a bit. We don't want to keep you too long. Talk about the title of your book, Dying to Live. What, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... A recurring theme across my conversion, uh, you know, based on the passage where Jesus says, if you wish to find life, you have to lose it. You know, if you want to live, you need to die. This paradox of Christianity that salvation comes through a cross, that resurrection life comes through crucifixion brokenness, that in this upside down, disordered, concupiscence, fallen state of affairs with sin and our priorities are all backwards. That you know it makes sense that we would have to die to pride, die to our selfishness, die to the lie of playing God that we're all born into. If we want to turn right side up again and find out that love is the source of life, self-donation, sacrifice, that it's about love. It's not all about me. You know, and, and so there's that theme of, of dying to self, you know, that's emphasized in Lent and in Advent, too, in a special way, but also just in Christianity in general, that we live by dying. But there's also a double meaning with it. You know, my whole life, I was just dying to live. You know, I I loved the fine arts. I loved being in the plays and the band in high school. I always wanted to fall in love. And I talk about my awful Augustine-like romantic past looking for the right girl. And you know, I just, I wanted to live. And then, you know, I I realized the hard way over and over again that, yeah, I'm just dying to live. And the thing is, that's literally what I'm gonna have to do. Wow, you mean uh,
0: Jesus, Jesus got it right.
1: What's that? You mean Jesus got it right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, imagine that. It's it's me catching up to him. That's the story of my life. But uh I would love if anybody's interested to follow my my ministry, which you can do easily at my website, dr Ianmurphy.com. It's uh, Ian D-R I A-N-M-U-R-P-H-Y. That's D R. I-A-N-M-U-R-P-H-Y.com, Dr. Ian Murphy.com. And you can uh, follow the ministry Facebook. You can see the materials
0: on there and, and, uh, and just be aware of what our ministry is doing. Very good. Well, I was going to ask you uh, to, to give us a thumbnail sketch of what you're doing now before we sign off. Oh, sure. Uh, at the
1: moment, just writing and speaking full time. I'm almost finished with my second book, which your acquisitions department will see first Very before good. anybody. else. I'm so excited about the prospect of maybe doing this again, because it was just such a joy to work with Ignatius Press. I mean, really, I'm blessed and can't thank you enough. So uh, it's uh, that book. Is a book about healing. It's called "I'm Not a Problem to Be Fixed," an integrated Catholic approach to personal healing. So uh, look for it mm-hmm. soon in, a, in an acquisitions department near you. So uh, that book's exciting, and then uh, you know, speaking <clears throat> and travel, doing that sort of thing. I was uh, online teaching. I still do some work with Divine Mercy University. But uh, because of some problems with vertigo, we're looking for ways to do on-site work because the online teaching aggravated some vertigo issues. So that's been sad, but I still do a lot with them, and I stay close to all my colleagues there. So I still feel like part of the
0: DMU family, too. Very good. I I relinquish the floor to, to Mr. Ryan here for any remaining questions he may have. Well, there's lots of questions. We could talk to Ian all day. It's so interesting.
2: But I think, you know, we've kind of reached our time limits, so I think we're going to have to wrap it up. But, Ian, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for writing the book. Uh, it was worth the wait. Um, we're very happy that it turned out to be a true story and not a novel. As Mark said, we thought, we thought it wasn't when he first got it, uh, Dying to Live. It was such a fantastic tale that, uh, you know, we, as Mark said, we were we thought maybe it was fiction. But, no, the good news is it's true. And so thank you for writing it, and uh, thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thanks for the work you continue to do. And as you mentioned, anyone that wants to have you come and speak, they can go to your website at DrIanMurphy.com and contact you about speaking. And um, we look forward to uh, working with you on this book and then hopefully on the next book that you said we're going to see soon. I do want to just wrap up then by telling our our listeners they can get your book at our website at Ignatius.com. Or they can call our 800 number, 800-651-1531, 800-651-1531 to buy the book. And if you have a Catholic bookstore that's open near you or will be open, give them business. Uh, We love to support our Catholic bookstores. I know a lot of them are struggling to be open. But uh, if they are open or when they are open, go buy Ian's book there. So thank you very much, Ian, for joining us. God bless you. And Mark, good to be with you today.
0: Yes, and good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Both, guys. Thank you
1: for publishing the book and for your time today. I am very grateful. God bless you.
0: You as well. Absolutely. Same to you. So long. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it, and please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.